gates. Chapter 3 In the dead of night, on the sixth floor of a tall building, his leg moves across the bed to a colder part and settles for a moment, happy to be still and slowly woke. He discovers another man is in bed with him, and he listens to him breathe for a moment. This makes Paul smile and wake a little further, feeling the effects of a full night through heavy eyes. He reaches over and touches the man's chest, feeling his soft, shaven pecs, then slips slowly dragging his fingers down his body, turning them into playful nails. He makes circles round his belly button to tease him and waits for him to respond to go further down. The other man wakes, and with a deep voice, he says, Hi. Paul and the bedfellow begin to take things into their own hands, tossing and turning, teabagging, touching and teasing one another, until... Ah! What the fuck? They both say at the very same time. What have you done? Stop saying the same thing as me, the bedfellow says in a very annoyed tone. And you've cut me, I think. Right on the end of it, he adds. No, you've cut me, Paul says in a camp, firm way. I'm, I'm not, not doing, doing this anymore. anymore. They both say at the very same time. They toss the bedding off to get a better view of one another, to see each other for the first time and see what damage this metal ring has done. Paul pulls out momentarily, but still doesn't know anything about. They stumble against one another, uncrossing their legs, and their minds go fuzzy and dark for only a second at the same time as they almost pass out. Pausing at the side of the bed, they hold their heads and shrug it off just as quick as it came, putting it down to a heavy night of overindulgence and continued looking for the light switch. It went, and both turned around to look at one another and at the same time were blinded by the light. With still a glimpse of excitement or possible disappointment, it was a nervous moment. As they adjusted to the light, rubbing their eyes together at the same time, they asked, What's, What's your, your name? name? They both replied, Paul. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Are you joking? They both had a chuckle and cleared their eyes to look up at one another, but nobody was there. What the hell is going on? He asked as just a single man stood five foot eleven tall, slender with a shaven bare chest, naked, and all by himself. Hello? Paul asked timidly, almost hoping for a reply, but still not sure if he wanted anybody to answer. Who is in bed with all that time and who is giving him so much pleasure? Was it just a dream? You can come out. Hi. Another voice asked in a slightly deeper tone. It was the voice of the bedfellow for sure. Paul turned around and looked behind him, looked down on the other side of the bed, and the voice asked, Where are you? I'm here! Paul replies, now in a really freaked out manner, What was going on? Frantically looking around, Paul spots the bathroom door and immediately goes to open it. In hope a quick splash of water to the face will stop this madness. He goes to open the door and... Ah, an iron board suddenly falls and cracks him right up the chin. Thanks for that. He sarcastically says to the board and he realises he just opened the cupboard door. Pushing the board back in with his left hand, slamming the door in anger with his right, he turns and looks for another door. Try, Try that, that one. one. So he marched on across the room to the next closed door and turned the brass handle on the white door to find a hallway. Looking straight across from him in the hallway, at head height, was a mirror. Paul looks into the mirror and sees a reflection staring back at him. His eyes are black and his skin is pale, grey even. He takes a step back in horror, touching his face and looking further and deeper into the mirror. He walks closer and closer, getting a better look at these eyes that don't seem to belong to him. What the 
fuck? Looking at himself. Yeah, that's me. I just saw my... What? Man. There are two clear voices coming out of the same man. Two poles in one body both begin to look at the face that could belong to a corpse. Wait, wait, wait. That's not me. That, that, that's got to be you. Oh, what am I saying? Yeah, he pauses. That's me. Replies a deeper-voiced Paul. W.T. Actual F. Replies a softer-spoken Paul. Out of the same mouth, they both talked. Look at that face. Different times. And at the same time. It happens after I... Or we use the Akori. What the fuck is that? We change back to human form. Stop talking. What the hell do you mean? You fucking with me? Who are you? I guess there's no harm in telling you. Because for some reason you, you seem to be me and this doesn't feel weird? He asks. Paul begins frantically pacing up and down, closing his eyes and banging on the side of his head. Calm down and listen for a second, yeah? I am calm, but this is so weird. I feel like I should already know you, but this doesn't freak me out and it should, but listen. All right, all right, I'm listening, I'm listening. Sit down. We've got a lot to talk about here. Paul in a comical manner holds his hand up. Hold on a sec, I'm bursting for a piss. They relieve themselves. They wash their hands, dry them on a towel and walk back into the bedroom. Put some clothes on they find on the floor and Paul asks, Is this your place then? No, not my place. It's a safe house. Just shut up and listen. I need to figure out a few things here too, you know. I don't know where to start and it's obvious to me that you and I are the same person sharing one body here. I know you're not me and I'm not you. Oh, so how are we talking right now? I haven't got... A... I'll start at the beginning. I was only five years old when my mum was killed by a monster and my dad abandoned me for a very long time. That happened to me, but we never knew who did it and my dad went to jail for the murder and I never saw him again. You need to get your story right. So you're telling me that our dad, Bill Bright, went to jail? <laughs> no, 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 no. Paul was beside himself with laughter. Bill Bright is the most powerful man on this planet and would destroy anybody that would attempt to imprison him. He added, what the actual fuck? That's our dad? Yeah. Yeah, he says. Well, I was adopted at the age of six after spending a whole year in a church's orphanage. Well, I wasn't so lucky. I was adopted. I don't know how many times I stopped counting. I found our dad at the age of 15 where he showed me how to use my powers and told me who killed mum that day. Powers? Who killed mum? He asked quickly. We now journey back to 1996 for the true story of poor Paul's youth. Paul Bright was a very troubled boy. Only 13 years old and he had already seen enough to call it a day on one of his lives. Yet, because of his affliction, it was the one thing he could not do. And he was blissfully unaware. Seemingly blessed. His power allows him to change into anything that has ever graced our planet. And any kind of multi-perverted creature he could think of. In fact, anything since Earth's birth. Over 450 billion years ago, would be now in his DNA to recall. This gift that Paul, Dylan and his father, William had been given is the very gift that connects everything in the universe. 
If we were to look beyond the subatomic makeup of life itself and deeper still, you would find the Akori Mono, evolutionary energy. You would have something that would be as unfathomable as the universe. The gifted user would be the conscious driver of a new body, so powerful it would control even the deepest reaches of the brain. But not all of them. So it would seem. The reason humans aren't able to control every power in their brain is simple. It's too much to let go, as they need something to grip onto. It was suspected that it was indeed a strange creature that gave Paul, Dylan and Bill the Akori Mono in the sea that day. They had been infected while stranded and helpless at sea. Only when Bill got his boy back to the shore that his wife aided him, bandaged her son and husband's cuts, would some of the truth from that day be revealed. It was back at their beachside caravan when the night crept in and they all fell asleep peacefully when things went down a different path. Back on that fable night in 1988, Bill went through his first change and committed atrocities to mankind that would see him in prison and castares for the criminally insane. Or would they? Then his father woke the next day. Bill had seen what carnage he had created looking at the blood-soaked caravan. Still dripping wet, covered in his wife's blood, her body blasted into bits all around the room. He could still taste her in his mouth and the salty seawater. He grabbed his son from the next room and he fled to the caravan park. Paul stood awake the whole time while his dad changed with his son in his arms and sped them away with inhuman pace using this gift to aid his escape from the horror Bill had cast over his entire family. Paul kept his eyes closed and pretended to be asleep so he wouldn't have to look at his dad or even hear him explain what happened. He was so scared of any words. Paul felt the pull of what his father did and it was dark. Ignorance was bliss. Paul pretended to be asleep in his father's clutches until Bill found a church hundreds of miles away so he could abandon Paul and walked away from his son. Paul was found after being dumped by his dad sometime later by Father Jack Cash. Laying at the feet of Christ. After a while he was placed in the foster care system and labeled as a problem child. It would be about two years before Paul would really speak again. The kind of right people never did seem to ever come along to care for Paul. Being picked on by the other kids when he was returned to the orphanage every time. For mainly horrible night terrors and being violent. Freaking out any would-be replacements for his mum and dad. Waking in the night recalling the events of that evening in screams. Enough to scare even the most highly trained guardians. It was the voices that came from Paul. The foster parents didn't want to figure out. Mummy. Nobody did. Some even tried to regress the young Paul, trying hypnotherapy. Now age nine, and looking so innocent with his lovable little face until you would catch his eyes. Hold them and you knew he had experienced things nobody should ever have to. Even hypnotherapy didn't work on Paul, as through sheer will alone, they couldn't get him under. Several well recognized and even one master in the field tried. The church orphanage cared a lot for Paul's well-being and sent him to Luton to see Elliot Wald. Even this master couldn't get Paul under. At the age of nine, his mind was so strong, but it was growing dark and Father Jack Cash could see it. And the one the orphanage turned to at their times of need, 
Father Jack believed in nurture and was sure the boy would come around in time. Given the correct environment and the support he needed, but in actual fact that would be the very opposite of what happened to Paul. A whole bunch of misunderstanding parents and mean streets drove Paul further down a dark path of pain and suffering. He went to public schools when he wasn't skipping classes, but was schooled in the streets. In and around the Nottingham area where he grew up getting what money he could from being a drug runner for a local gang, stealing wallets and purses to spend time in an arcade playing games like Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter. Always the fighting games. Escapism, Father Jack called it. Every Sunday, the young Paul would make tapes of the top 40 chart shows and listen to them on his Walkman throughout the week. He would always be seen wearing his headphones, blocking out the world around him. With a soft pat on his head, Father Jack would only give him words of reassurance and kind looks. But was this what the boy needed? Father Jack was never prying too far. He was scared as to what he might find. There was even small talk of demonic possession that Father Jack would hush whenever it was brought up by the nuns in the orphanage. It wasn't till one day Paul had a run-in with a rival gang in a dark alley, waiting to take Paul's bag of drugs, posing as buyers as they refused to pay Paul, giving him a message instead. The rival gang set about this 13-year-old boy giving him the beating of his life, and he already had a few. Leaving Paul on the floor struggling for breath, with a punch to the gut, he wipes the blood from his face and rolls over onto his back and looks up at the sky. The gang's leader walks up to Paul and stands over him. I almost forgot to give you that message for your pimp, you bitch. Spitting on Paul, he pulled the knife out and even through blurred vision, Paul could see what was coming. Down came the knife. It went deep inside, straight into Paul's chest. He tried to pull it out, putting his foot on Paul's shoulder to pull the struggling knife out of the bones in Paul's chest. The gang's leader bends down to look at Paul dead in the eyes. Unsure whether the shiver that just ran through his body was the adrenaline from the rush of stabbing this little punk, or whether he saw something in the kid's eyes that suddenly spooked him, he wipes the blade across Paul's leg, removing the blood. Then he turns and walks away with the rest of the gang, laughing as they leave the alleyway. The knife went in so deep it would leave Paul to bleed out in a matter of minutes, only just missing his heart and killing him in only seconds. You might wonder if this was a deliberate ploy to make Paul suffer even more. At least that was Paul's dying thoughts. Not really grasping for the things he would miss, or having a well-fantasized flashback at everything. Just anger sweeping up through him as the blood continues to flow from him. Lying on the floor, his blood pooling all around him, defiantly he tries to slowly lift his head. <coughs> blood dripping from his hair into the ever-increasing pool below his head. And with a hard, wet thud, his head goes back down into the blood, all red. This was it. He was dying, blinking his eyes and expecting to slip away at any moment alone. 
in a dirty back alley in the back streets of Nottingham. When a voice inside him said, You getting up then? When suddenly he felt no more pain. Free of any fuzz and noise his mind was making in those last few moments, clarity and purpose now replaced faithlessness and fear. It was like a whole new person had came into his body and took over him and took away all the doubt and the pain. Paul began to feel the hole in his chest. It was healing all by itself and still soaked in his own blood, he sat up. Dripping red and pale was his skin. Licking his lips to take away the dryness, he straightened himself and felt the hole in his chest once again. It was gone. Paul grabs his mangled headphones and straightens the wire and puts them back over his head once again as the track plays on. Listening to the melody and shutting his mind off from the world, listening to the music at the same time as feeling these new powers flow through him. As he feels the beat, he feels the footsteps of the gang. As he listens to the melody, he hears the laughter of the gang. As the drums pound, he feels his heart pounding in this new healed chest. New life, new body. And then like a flash, he's off, running through the alleyway, across the streets and up to the boarded house. Omniferously talented this young boy was, so he slaughtered the first three, all the while the gang leader watched with broken legs. It was fast, and you could say with neck-snapping mercy, all inside this boarded-up house, this 13-year-old boy began a journey into a very dark chapter in his life. Taking his time with the gang's represented head, he taunted him with the bodies of the other three, freaking him out as he lay helpless on the floor watching the show Paul had designed just for him. He foolishly attempted to crawl away. No, you don't, Paul says to the boy, while he pulled himself across the wooden floor, covered in empty crisp packets, smashed glass, old cigarette ends and remains of the day stoned, his blood trailing behind him like a snail. From all the splintered bones popping out of each of his broken legs, Paul wasn't done with him yet, and licked his lips once again. Stop! His face and eyes began to change and change back to black eyes, in a shudder to that of a hairless-headed monster. But Paul pushed it back with a judder as it broke his stride. Something was changing inside of him. I've got that message. Now you know what? I've got one for you, Paul said to the boy. On his belly and still trying to get away, the boy cried at this point, fully aware of what was coming. Paul slipped a standing foot under the right hip of the boy as he still tried to crawl away on his belly. The boy was only 18 years of age at the time and Paul flipped him over onto his back like he was nothing and leant in to say something to him. I do the fucking around here. Paul whispered in his ear with great satisfaction in his voice. Then he got even louder when he added, I don't get fucked anymore! Almost sounding crazed at the end, he manifested a metal dagger from dust, dirt and particles in the room into his raising arm. He slams the knife down into the boy's chest, hitting him in the heart. Paul twists the knife and watches the blood burst as he pulls it out of his beating chest, close enough to cover his own face in the boy's red blood. Paul watched the life drain from his eyes as he died in seconds. Paul rose from the ground, only a young man. They all were. The three boys he killed in their late teens too. Turning his Walkman to full volume, 
a house looking like a scene that was just gang related. And why would anybody think any differently? Paul certainly didn't give them any reason to look further at him as he quietly slipped away out of the back door growing new black clothes and removing all that blood with just a wave of his hand. He smiled a little more after that day. He now understood a little more what might have happened to him that day all those years ago out to sea. This new clarity and confidence stood him well, fitting in and playing a little nicer, at least on the surface. Underneath, he was becoming calculated, cold and ruthless, in the pursuit to fight his father and deliver justice for his mother by returning a little balance to the world. He felt righteous for once in his miserable life. At least his mind found a little sanity in that guiltless place. Going to school and fitting in, still keeping a distance, Paul would age another two years before he would meet his father. By chance, in a park. Now, age 15, his eyes widened, looking at his father. Ten years had passed and rage swept over his whole body like a cold sweat. Paul was now face to face with the man that killed his mother. He stepped back a little more from his father and almost fell. Something from the deep sea chose them and changed them all for a reason he didn't have any answer for yet. Paul thought he was picked, but his father, in his eyes, wasn't chosen wisely that day. Having revenge in his heart for his fallen mother, he sees something unwavering in his father's eyes. No remorse in them as he looks back at him. When she was the victim in all of this, he knew his father was not sorry somehow. He was going to make him pay. Bill Bright was so powerful at this point that he knew what his son was thinking before his brain told him to show emotion on his face. Waking up the impending threat his son posed, he overestimated him in hope. All the while they stood in an open park with people just going about their day. Oblivious. Back went Paul's right leg in a blur of motion that gave him power in his first strike, ripping into the glass they stood on as he leant into his first right-handed blow. But before his eyes, Bill appeared an inch off his nose, with his hand catching Paul's fist, smiling at his son as the power dissipated from the energy he created, kicking up a load of mud and grass into the air. Before I had the chance to fall on the pair of them, locked in battle together, Bill stepped back just as quick. The debris fell on only Paul. You can't beat me, son, Bill said, holding out his left hand. Come on, don't be daft. And turning it as if to take his son's hand. Fuck you, Mr. Handman, Paul replied. Paul suddenly dropped his head and hutched his shoulders. Then with pace, out from his neck, spreading down his back, he grew black in yellow fur, bursting out of him, emanating energy as once again he grips his hands to fists. He raged it to sound like Bruce Lee and kicked his legs left, right, left quickly settling his shape and chucking his fist without thought, control or care for people screaming their way after the city park as the ground around them is destroyed. All the while, Bill dodged every attack with just a blur of white light and a flash of wind. Paul's attack decimated the ground they were stood on and it smashed and splintered the trees where they stood as the energy waves that flowed out of him with every attack Paul chucked Bill's way with nothing landing on Bill. He tried harder still, further enraged. Paul stopped to find focus. The distant sound of people running and screaming was fading. 
One sound even stopped suddenly as a woman running took a look back to see if she was clear of the carnage, then smacked right into a large tree and she was knocked out cold before she hit the floor. Back to Paul, a small grin rose, only for a second seeing the funny in the fall. He felt her heart rate fly through the air to him and he focused on her. He could taste the blood coming from her lips, sense the fear in her mind fading to nothing as she lost consciousness. Then her heart rate fell as she lay there some 200 yards from ground zero, unconscious. I can help you, son, if you just let me. Bill asked with real hope in his voice. You will die like her first! Paul replied mad with anger as his teeth grew sharpening. Bill knew what he had to do. He didn't want this though, it was the only way. He stood taller than his son and walked towards him. As Paul's rage grew like the points in his teeth until he attacked, he flung open his jaw and went for the kill. Bill caught his jaw, left hand top and right hand bottom. He looks into his son's eyes as they sharpen, focusing tight on his father. Paul's arms still free, then with a blur of black and yellow, speed towards Bill's head. Rip! Snap! Bill had ripped the jaw from Paul's face and snapped his neck, killing him with two big, ferocious bursts of energy. And as the air passes where they stood, it tips trees, pushes over fences, sets off car alarms in the distance and smashes faraway windows. Bill drops the bloody jaw from his right hand, leaving a tooth in his palm, and his son's dead body falls to the floor. Firstly trying with his left hand, but finally finishing the job with his mouth, he pulled out the pointed tooth, spitting it out and killing a witness some 60 yards away, ducking behind a rubbish bin. He scoops up the rest of his son and shakes out black, bat-like wings from his back in a mist of black smoke. Lifting them towards the sky, their span was twice his size, they smashed down, hurtling him into the sky, leaving a crater in his wake. First watching the earth and dirt fly, we travel with a demon-like figure flying through the sky, Bill broke the sound barrier and was gone. Now, back on the ground as the rubble settles and the point of takeoff, and the last few mounds of dirt splash back down to earth and the small crater that Bill left and this once peaceful park scene. The sounds of distant police sirens echo through the city to the now empty site of the decimated park ground, giving light to the thought that if nobody was there at all, would you even be able to hear the sounds of the sirens getting closer? At a secret location miles away, we see the body of Paul Bright still dead laid out and mutilated on a cold table, blood dripping from his face. We see a giant hole in his head from the removed jaw. Slow breaths flow out of the mouth of Bill as the warmth from his lungs meets the sub-zero temperatures with every breath he expels. He takes a sharp, deep breath when wires with blue lights grow out of his hands that remain by his sides. Spreading their way through the air, we see small flashes of steam leave their twisting shape, making their way towards Paul. The tentacles now in Paul's brain begin reforming his memories for two new people in one mind. 
as life sped back into his head, twisting his neck left and right, his hands grasped and let go, regrowing his jaw, his face knitted back together. His father, void of emotion, created a split in his son's mind for his own reasons, giving Paul a set of imperfect memories, placing him with recollections of a foster carer with a wealthy lifestyle, a new mother he would grow to love on one side, and his name was Paul Fiss. And the other was dubbed psychopathic Paul Bright. With all the dark traits Psycho had acquired, he would be the perfect weapon to use as Bill saw fit. A simple lie was given to this boy, removing Bill from the murder of his mother. The perfect weapon. So Bill, now still unattached in his actions, carried on forging memories in his son's mind. He had ten years to plan and perfect this moment. Through the night, friendships that would lead him back to Dylan, and a life also spent with the real Bill Bright as a weapon and willing right hand. Then it was done, and ten years were wiped out and changed. It was always there in Bill's son, and something even an evil Bill would never change about his own flesh and blood. Was this the one defining thing that Bill couldn't change about his son that led Paul Fiss into the arms of Paul Bright? This brings us back to the present for Paul Bright and Paul Fiss, back into the room where one soul slowly comes to the conclusion that two stories don't make sense. Two sides of one story with different views? Like a yin-yang they curved and twisted sitting together. Would this be now forever? Psycho says to Paul, just so you know, handcuff, it's, it's my doing. I'll tell you later. You know, the one thing that we both remember is that our dad left us and our mum was murdered. So what are you saying? You and me need to work together and find out what the truth is. That's what I'm saying. And Bill can't find out. So you're saying that you know our dad still and that I'm going to get to meet him again. It's been 25 years, Paul says with surprise and doubt as he bites the nail on his right hand nervously. They continue to talk to one another, talking from the same mouth in an insane way. Look, I work with father and I fight against Shizuki and the lessers and they especially can't find out about this weakness in us. We know about each other now and we have to stick together if we're going to discover more. I feel calmness and innocence in you that I've not felt for as long as I can remember. I feel power and energy in you I've never felt before. What is that? All in good time. They stand up and look down at the metal ring on his wrist, the half set of handcuffs, and snap it in two, tossing it away like it was nothing. That was cool. This is called the Akori Mono. We found that much out from one of Shizuki's lasses once we captured her some years back and made her talk. Just so you know, you ain't seen nothing yet, mate. Paul walks to the window and opens it wide, wide enough he can climb out into the ledge and look down six flights from this city tower block, the street lights still lighting the city below as a few cars drive around in the distance. The wind blows and Paul moves with it floating off the ledge and travelling in perfect harmony with the wind when his skin becomes clear as night and vanishes. We're flying! Oh my god! Get used to it. Chapter's end.
Coming home.